Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and thanks to Chris for great voices. This is Jen Bartlett and I'll be here until six this afternoon with Tuesday Home Time. Today we'll have a report from Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and we'll be focusing on a really wonderful film that's been made. You'll hear all about that, Rifles or Graffiti. Kate will be talking about that and I'll be talking about it too because I've seen the film and it's well worth seeing and hopefully it will be on again. Peace and anti-war issues with MAPW, Medical Association for the Prevention of Wars Secretary, Dr Margie Beavis. Gene ethics issues with Bob Muntz. The Bougainville Revolution. The Bougainville Referendum is now only a month, a year away. Will it happen? There's a bit of a doubt that might not happen. And also, will the Panguna Mine open or not? And also the unrest in the highlands of PNG. I'll be speaking with Christine Hill, who's Acting Executive Director of Jubilee Australia. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those. A week, Jane Lister, when this dispute between the left and right of the Socialist Party over who most loves the great corporates and the filthy rich led the caring business class lot, particularly a hyper-excited minister for spending fortunes on weapons of mass destruction, Christopher Payne in there, to confect a split in the Socialist Party, a leadership challenge no less, over critical socialist policy like loving the great corporate sector. As the leader of its out-of-control left, Anthony All Profits Been Easy, showed just how out-of-control the left is by declaring the socialists must love business big and small, love the great corporates, and somehow this showed a split with Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, whom Christopher told us was the enemy of the great corporates because he refuses to give them trillions in tax cuts. I will not condone tax cuts for the filthy rich corporates. Little Billy made his position clear. Until I'm Big Supremo. And the storm in lured all these Socialist Party ministers to assure us they all loved small business and big business and the filthy rich equally. There is no split. We always consult with the sundry chambers of profits and great corporate barons before determining our position on issues that affect them, like workers' wages and conditions and the extreme demands of union bosses. Well, in fact, all issues affect our corporate very, very close friends, so we consult them on all issues and balance those issues with those we represent as champions of the working class. Well, Anthony All Profits Been Easy, who knows left policy number one is to love the great corporates, must suffer real hardship on his shadowy Minister Parliamentary salary as he discusses the problems of the destitute over breakfast with his partner, the numbers person for the New South Wales right, a former Deputy Premier still suffering poverty on her parliamentary salary, a household salary of not much more than half a million dollars, so real empathy. 
Imagine their caring breakfast conversation. Still, it shows an out-of-control left socialist can cohabit with a right socialist, which is so encouraging, a, a warm inner glow, holding out hope for the world. Last week, we showed a little bit of scepticism over that new caring business class policy to privatise the ABC in the interests of media balance, reminding ourselves that big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the team have denied the policy is the policy. Me think yon Malcolm doth protest too much. We questioned whether the ABC was a commie front rather than a centre-right outlet, which to Malcolm and large swathes of his team in particular seems like a commie front. But then the ABC removed the fragile, tattered cloak of neutrality and exposed its bias, proving the government's case as it turned Senator Erica Betts on the bosses loose on the microphone to put the ABC is a commie, long-haired, agitprop front case. Clearly a Machiavellian leftist plot, knowing he'd make a complete twit of himself, which he did, of course. And the ABC is an affront to all fair-minded, uh, clear-thinking, true-blue Aussies uh, and an insult to all who respect the dear baby Jesus and to the dear baby Jesus himself. We also left telecommunications success story up for us, you suckers, handing World Cup matches to public free-to-air SBS for a day or two. SBS, from which it took the right to all matches to give its customers the satisfaction of paying for what was previously free. Handing for a day or two, while it sorted out a few technical glitches like rewarding those who forked out their hard-earned with a blank screen. About then, the op for us, you sucker supremo, said its World Cup coverage was an excellent product, leading us to ponder what he might consider a, a slightly imperfect product, indeed a disaster. Or conversely, the public SBS product must be in the excellent product stratosphere. And the big supremo described it as an excellent product while announcing SBS would now show all games for at least the next week or so due to the excellent product still trying to sort out the glitches, leaving us also to ponder how the bloated, inefficient public free-to-air channel could show every game while the super-efficient private sector opt for us, you suckers, still had its technicians scratching their heads looking at the excellent product on those blank screens along with those who'd forked out their hard-earned. Let's hope all that doesn't destroy competition policy or our faith in privatisation in the great corporate sector providing public services for, for an appropriate fee. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor's consistent inconsistency almost reached new heights or depths, depending how we look at it, or at least, let's be fair, apparent inconsistency, as last week we praised Donald for tearing non-dear little children away from their criminal parents, attempting to invade the US arm and destroy its way of life, the envy of all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. But this week we discovered Donald wasn't ripping non-dear little children and babies from their evil, illegal, criminal parents, but was bringing families together by making parents and children appreciate each other even more. Separation makes the heart grow. And Donald's heart all but burst at the sight of riven families. It was a horrible thing. Bad, bad. Like the horrible things his predecessor had done, which so upset Donald.
Bit of a pity he didn't say which horrible things, because there's no way he would have just made it up. And we know an uncrowned Nobel Peace Laureate would never treat people badly, unless they happen to be under the drones on the other side of the world at the wrong time, which would be their own fault. We can't blame Donald for that, or his predecessor for that matter. And Donald um, said his predecessor, another Nobel Peace Laureate who, like Donald, employed the drones to slaughter terrorist cells like wedding parties in his quest for world peace, had not only cruelly ripped dear little children off their parents, but tortured and executed them after keeping them locked up in rat-infested dungeons. Oh, how the very thought of such inhumanity must burst poor Donald's heart. Speaking of drones and the Minister for Spending Fortunes on Weapons of Mass Destruction, see True Blue Aussie is about to spend lots of taxpayers' hard-earned sending Christopher Payne in there and the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, soaring over the high seas to protect us from security threats like those seeking refuge. Oh, and evil China, of course. On the consistently inconsistent front, one notion giant mind that appalling Hoonsun took a lesson from Donald's book. Not that she needs a mentor in deep thinking and consistency. By supporting tax cuts for the filthy rich 132 times for the week and opposing tax cuts for the filthy rich 131 times. And the government was fortunate she was in support mode when the vote was taken. Another minute and who knows? Although there was one ray of hope, that appalling denied she would benefit personally from her vote. Uh, but you will, Ajuno asked. Must have been from that commie hotbed, the ABC. No, I mightn't be in the Senate when it comes in. Let's hope for once she's spot on. And she was spot on. After corporate generator of wealth and jobs, Clive Palmer Gina, urged her to support more tax cuts for the corporate filthy rich. I don't deal with grubs like that, that appalling screeched. Direct quote, no embellishment needed. And we can't disagree with that. Not that the outburst means she won't vote for what she says she won't vote for when it comes to the crunch. Indeed, recording in the morning creates a problem when it comes to that appalling and Donald, because who knows where they might be on any issue by the time we go to air. Must say the high regard we have for Lock 'em Up for Life Senator Darren Lyncham soared even higher at the scene on telly last night of that appalling and Lyncham being very, very close friends in the corridors of power and laughing at each other's scintillating wit. To think that pair have a say in matters that affect us. Although as Clive re-emerges as a little ray of hope, uh, well we probably can't call him little, but ray of hope, to restore balance to politics, we must agree with tax cuts for the filthy rich corporates, because if poor Clive could get just a little bit of tax relief from the taxes he doesn't pay, then he'd be able to pay all those workers he hasn't paid and who are luxuriating in their poverty in the Townsville environs, enjoying the warmth of the weather and Clive. Although when challenged about owing his workers heaps, Clive reveals his socialist credentials and attacks government, state and federal for failing in their responsibilities to foot the bill for his workers, showing why he needs to get back into Parliament to show governments what their real responsibilities are. 
Finally, one of the big four world accounting corporates, which knows what's good for all of us, KP on the poor NG, predicts superannuation insurance will rise by 26%, substantially reducing the amount in workers' accounts, leading an insurance industry spokesperson to declare this was a good thing, as it would make the system fairer. No, listener, I've got no idea either. I'll, I'll leave you to work that one out. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr Kevin Hurley. And tomorrow morning at nine, you can say good morning to Mr Kevin Healy when he and his team present City Limits until ten o'clock. And just in case you haven't been round for the last couple of weeks, here's a little reminder. If you um, would like to support our radio site, it's still going. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Vote for your mic. Next to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And Kate, one of the films featured at this year's Refugee Week Film Festival was Rifles or Graffiti. Perhaps we could talk about the film. A great number of people made the film possible and in some circumstances at the risk of personal safety, if not death. But it didn't just focus on the more recent events, but detailed the whole history of the country in terms of Morocco, Spain, etc. Can you talk about the film, um, Kate, and perhaps people might in the future be able to see it because it's well worth seeing? Yes, it's, a, it's an interesting film and what it shows particularly, especially in the occupied area of Western Sahara under Morocco, is footage of journalists trying to film the way in which protesters are treated by the Moroccan authorities. And you see the protesters in the street, they've got a few banners, they're shouting slogans probably, but none of them have got any kind of weapon. And there's no, even no sort of throwing of stones or anything like that. And the police come in, they're riot gear, and they attack the... They don't just sort of herd them somewhere or anything. They really attack these protesters and they kick them on the ground. And there's, as you see these police sort of doing all of that, there are these other guys in amongst the, the group in civil clothes, uh, civilian clothes. And those are obviously the security forces or the intelligence forces who are directing the operation to some extent, I think. And so all of that is really quite interesting. The way in which they can get that footage is to be up on the roof of of buildings and they make little kind of holes in the brickwork or the uh, brief blocks and they shoot the camera through that so they can't be seen. And... It's all completely clandestine. If they get caught, that's 
the end, their cameras get uh, in, confiscated, and very likely the, they'll certainly be taken in for interrogation, and quite likely imprisoned. Right at the minute, I've heard from uh, the person who coordinates this media o operation called Equip Media, or Media Team in English, somehow, it's, or Equipo in in Spanish, but, and they produce their reports in all of those languages, in English, Spanish, French, Arabic, four languages. The guy who runs this thing called uh, Mohammed Mayra, I wrote to him to ask exactly how many porters are in prison, and he's given me all the list of the names. Some of them are, one of them is in for life imprisonment, another one for 20 years, one for six years, and I don't actually, didn't give me the terms of three others. So journalism is an extremely dangerous pastime, or profession, I should say, in uh, occupied Western Sahara. On the other hand, the point of the film called Rifles or Graffiti is about whether there should be armed conflict or peaceful uh, protest. And... In the past, the Sahrawis have traditionally gone with the peaceful resistance line. But increasingly, after all these years, because it's dating from the invasion by Morocco in 1975, and then the ceasefire brokered by the United Nations in 1991, so... You know, whether you count from the beginning of the invasion or the beginning of the ceasefire, it's been a very, very long time for this peace to be negotiated by peaceful means. And so there are increasing numbers of young people on both sides of the wall, some of them in the refugee camps that what the film goes and visits and talks to, and, uh, and some of them uh, in the uh, uh, occupied zone, arguing that really we have to go back to war because there's no way that we're going to advance this process by continuing to do what we're doing at the moment. And so that, that this is the big debate of the film, really. But it, uh, it's an interesting film, and uh, you know, maybe uh, we will be able to get hold of it if there's interest. So... I mean, again, I mean, maybe we can make it available again to be shown. It hasn't been screened in Sydney yet, and there's interest by some people up there as well. So, yes, we probably have a film night later in the year. There's other good films that we want to show as well, but this is a good one, and it does have an angle that you don't usually see in the documentaries about Western Sahara. And just focusing on that media team for a bit more, they, they get down off the rooftops and they take their camera, hide their camera or their their phone and get into a, a building somewhere, sit on the floor and get their laptops out and send it off. Yes, that's right. Because they realised that the protest was really almost pointless if it was if they were going to get out on the street with a few placards and then get beaten and and uh, imprisoned and whatever, the, the, that was almost pointless. If 
the message didn't get out to the rest of the world. And as well as treating protesters badly, Morocco also doesn't tolerate international observers or foreign press. And so journalists are constantly being turned away at the border and international observers, even members of the European Parliament, representatives from well-accredited human rights organizations who have given prizes quite often to Sahrawi human rights activists, such as Aminatou Haidar, who you see on the film, and Mohamed Dadesh, who was the longest-serving prisoner, longer even than Nelson Mandela, uh, when he got released eventually in the uh, 90s. He, he was given a prize by the Rafto organization in Norway, and they sent people to see how things were getting on, and they were not allowed to come in either. So in view of the fact that there can't be reporting by the foreign press, the only way to get it into the foreign press is for the Sahrawis to send the news themselves, and that's what they're doing, as you say, yeah. Just talking about the last two that came from Sweden, was it? Yes. What excuse do they give to these high-profile people to say you're not allowed in? They just say you're not welcome here. They don't always give reasons. They you know, take their passports, they interrogate them, they want to know what they're doing. If they say that they're uh, coming to attend a conference maybe sometimes. There was a, people coming to a women's conference last year who were not allowed to attend. If it's anything to do with Western Sahara, then they, I mean, the, the, the Saharawi cause, you're not allowed in. I wouldn't mind betting if you were a businessman saying that you were coming to arrange a new deal with Moroccan company to plunder their <laughs> natural resources, you might get through. But, um, I mean, you wouldn't put it in those terms, but, uh, but they do continue the plunder of the natural resources, but they don't want anything, any information exported at all. Back to the possibility of the conflict turning back to war. Dr. Claire Spence seems to be a bit more optimistic in her paper. Yes, yes. She um, has, has written this paper. I'm not quite clear whether it's... Um, it's called... Uh, it's on the Chatham House website, so it may have been delivered in London at Chatham House, which is an organisation looking at international politics. And it's called Shifting Geopolitics, what may see movement in Western Sahara. And uh, maybe, yes, she does try to assess all of what's going on and seems to think that there is some possibility for a hope of a breakthrough. I mean, there is a, a new representative, a special envoy from the UN Secretary General called Horst Köhler, who is a very high-profile person. He's a former president of Germany, and he uh, is trying to kickstart what he calls a new momentum 
with the peace process and right at the minute he's touring the region he needs to get some results because um, the UN mission has only been given six months to report back this year normally they are given a whole year to to uh, you know go away and do something and tell us what how you're getting on in a year this time to try and sort of help this process to ex- to accelerate the process they were just given six months so they've got to be back in November to the Security Council with um, some kind of showing some kind of progress hopefully in these talks Morocco as usual doesn't really want to take part they've got what they think is their solution which would basically be claiming the country as squatters rights and as their own without any process that would be the normal way to decolonize a former European colony and in any case Spain is actually the responsible power for Western Sahara still even though they ceded to Morocco in 1975 76 was when they finally got out actually 60 in February so Morocco has been saying that they don't want to talk with West, the Polisario Front they want Algeria to be part of the talks they just find a new way to put a spoke in the wheel put a, you know, a spanner in the works and slow things down and make something make the whole issue to be about something else and not to be about how can the Sahrawi people have their vote of self-determination. That's the question they do not want to see debated or answered because they know know that law is on the Sahrawi side and they do not really have a case. What's the reaction by the Algerian authorities to push this way? I haven't actually seen any any response in the Algerian press about that. No, I don't know what they... I mean, their normal response is, it's nothing to do with us. We have taken pity on them and we have hosted the refugee camps because we believe in self-determination and it would be a betrayal of our own achieving of independence not to support the Zahadawi cause. That's their view normally, their public view. So I, I really don't know how and if at all they've responded to these overtures by Morocco. And I don't know whether, you know, how, uh, Morocco says things like that, but whether anything has actually taken place towards finding out whether the Algerians have got a view on the matter. I mean, that might not have even happened. Does Kola have anything to do with Spain as well? I expect he will be um, involving Spain and France as the European countries that are most involved with this. There's a little group in the UN that has got the big misnomer of Friends of Western Sahara. (laughs) And most of them are enemies of Western Sahara. Uh, France and, and Spain are two of the members in that group, United Kingdom and United States also. And I can't remember if there's another. Israel? No. 
no, not Israel, there was a move to try and include South Africa to, so that the Sahrawis might have a real friend. <laughs> Why do they call themselves friends of Oh, if it's the UN name, well, I don't know. They must do. It must be a standard thing that when they're having, when a, a decolonisation isn't before the uh, matter is before the Security Council, they perhaps you know have this thing. And the, the job of this group, it's like a kind of subcommittee, really. In a, a other situations you might call it the Western Sahara subcommittee because it's their job to come up with a resolution that gets put to the Security Council and the uh, America is what is called the pen holder uh, <laughs> which means that they are responsible for formulating this resolution but they consult with those other states about it. Is there a role for the African Union or the African people? In the past they had quite an important role because they were jointly involved with the United Nations and there were ambassadors from Africa present in the Minnesota Mission or, or in Al Ayun. Yes, I know. Uh, I think. But yes, we, we met two of these ambassadors once when we were in the camps and they were visiting in the camps as you know part of their tour of duty that they had to go over there to the refugee camps from time to time to talk, have talks over there. They got expelled along with the whole of the Minoso mission the year before last, wasn't it, in 2016. Some of the mission got allowed back quite soon and parts of it have still not come back and I think that part of the part that hasn't come back but the African Union is really behind the Sahrawi cause and they are trying I think to get a proper role in this peace process. The film also just to hark back to that it, yeah. it focused a fair bit on the, the situation of the people in the camps in Algeria out in the desert. Yes. Not a very good existence for anyone, particularly young children. Talk about the Stave House, what their role has been. Oh, yes, that's it, right. So, so a British uh, organisation called Stave House, which the Stave is uh, the, the clue, it's about music, they have developed a special system for teaching music. They've had two years, I think, of, of running a kind of workshop in the Sahrawi refugee camps with young children. And it involves learning English as well as learning to read music. They're coming on pretty well. And it's a really nice program. The children love doing it. And it's been very successful. I think if you Googled Stave House or Stave House in the Sahara, uh, all as one word, perhaps you would you would be able to find online some footage about how they teach and what they what they've been doing there. And uh, yes, it's it's really um, heartening to see how responsive the children are when they get 
some attention like that and, and something very positive to do. And of course there are a number of NGOs from many countries working with the people in the camps. There are, there are, yes. Uh, they sort of come and go a little bit. Uh, there was a group called um, Enfants du Monde, I think, or the Children of the World. I'm not quite sure if they're still there, but uh, yes, yes, and there are um, American young people who come over and, and teach English as well. There's a, a church in America that supports some of these interns or, you know, whatever you call them, people coming on, on these projects, and, and other kind of, you know, from lots of other countries, including Spain, largely, I think there's a, a large number of different projects animated by Spain. One of them involves art. They, they have a, pro, a, a kind of um, program once a year when artists come and interpret things about the camps and make actual sculptures and murals and things like that, sometimes in the camps, sometimes in the liberated zone, the Saharawi side of the military wall that divides the country. You know, that's, again, a very positive way for people to express themselves, and they're very responsive. Art is very good like that. And, of course, uh, as we know, there are musical groups that have grown up in the camps. Uh, we saw Aziza Brahim here at Womadelaide a couple of years ago, and then she gave a concert in Brunswick at the Brunswick Music Festival. One of the new films that we want to show uses her as a sort of chief uh, resistor. There's, it's called Sirocco Winds of Resistance and Aziza Brahim is, and her grandmother who inspired her are, uh, is one of the sort of stars of the film. So we might get to see her again but on the big screen, not on the, not on the stage. And of course there's the students, both younger and older, who go to other countries to do secondary, is it secondary schooling or is it university? Yes, uh, some of them go to Cuba for secondary education. I think a, a few probably go to Spain as well, but mostly it's for tertiary education. They go to Algeria for secondary education, of course, too, but um, it's mostly for, for, for when they want to go to university, they go to other countries and uh, or and every summer and including right now there are children going to Europe for the summer the camps become unbearably hot in the middle of summer temperatures over 40 every day that sort of thing and they don't have refrigeration so everything is really unpleasant you know if, if it's very hot here we say we're not going to cook because we'll just have a salad well a salad comes out of the fridge and it's nice and cool and if you have got a tin of something you can open your sardines and it's cool as well but there the sardines come out quite hot because the tin will have got hot in this in this uh, temperature so um Nothing's very appetising, and so the um, 
the, the, the authorities, the uh, Sahrawi authorities, like the children to go elsewhere if they can during the um, during the, mid, the middle of the summer because it's um, really unpleasant in the camps, and they they go to Spain. And this beginning of this film, coming back to that again, there's this young Sahrawi woman saying. When I grew up, I didn't realize that the, any part of the world was different from where I grew up. And I thought everybody lives in tents like we do. And then I went to Spain and I saw people had houses and cars and, and there were streets and so on. And I came back and I said to my grandmother, why do we live in such a different way from, from these other people? And the grandmother says, ah, you see you're not living in your country. When we used to live in our country, we had houses, but now we live in the refugee camps. We've got tents. And yeah, she, she says, ah, it is not my country. Yes, it was a moment of illumination for her, wasn't it? it was. I like that. Well, from children playing or enjoying music, children like playing soccer and I'm quite sure the children in the camps like playing soccer they certainly do they certainly do they nothing could please them more than to be given a soccer ball I think <laughs> and that brings us to the FIFA World Cup in Morocco yes. there were two bids uh, ending up as wishing to be a host for the 2026 games uh, sorry World Cup and um Morocco was one of them. The other turned out to be the, the winning bid was a joint bid known as the United Bid, in fact, uniting Canada, Mexico and the United States. And that group got 134 votes and Morocco lost out with only 65 votes. And there were three abstentions. And Iraq uh, declared a plague on both the houses and somehow managed to register a vote against both candidates. So uh, Morocco is, is not at all happy with this uh, situation, but uh, the fifth time that they have put in a, uh, become a candidate for being host to the World Cup, and this bid apparently was a lot better than most of the others. It still involved a huge number of promises most of the stadiums the stadia that would have been used are not built there might be one that was or two possibly that were of the standard and size that were needed i think in the end they would have lost on uh, you know technical reasons just because of that on the other hand they put in a lot of effort trying to get votes and especially in Africa they expected because they'd become a recent uh, member, recently rejoined the African Union that they might be able to count on a sort of more or less block vote from every African country. However, South Africa voted against Morocco as a World Cup host because of its position on Western Sahara. Uh, other countries had the same follow suit with that in, in Africa. So uh, this issue of 
uh, Western Sahara was definitely a factor in not attracting as many votes as they might otherwise have had. Well, there's a message there for them, isn't there? Let's hope so, yes. Let's hope they get the message. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kate, and you'll let us know in the future if this film is going to be shown again. Yes, yes, we will, because, as you say, it is a very good film, and... uh, and it's well worth seeing, uh, and, and it's even worth seeing a second time. I mean, and just the bravery of the the activists and the film crews, the journalists. Yes, that's right. I mean, there's another film called Three Stolen Cameras, which was a kind of paired film with Palestine, where something similar happened. It was made by a Swedish group. They just tell the story of. Uh, of three of these cameras that got confiscated and, you know, the whole circumstances under which it all happened. Um, so, yes, it's a, it's a very, uh, pre- you know, precarious and, um, and daring business to be in if you're trying to get the news of what's really happening in Western Sahara to the rest of the world. Thank you, Kate. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. And that's Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and... If and when the film is being shown again, Rifles or and Graffiti, I'll let you know in the program. Hopefully it will be soon again this year. Time of 3CR. This is Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. The time is 20 minutes to 5 o'clock. Each year, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival curates world-class, local and international features direct from some of the hottest, most prestigious documentary film festivals in the world, like Cannes, Doc New York City, South by Southwest and Sundance. This year, opening night is on Friday the 6th of July at 7pm at Cinema Nova Carlton. The festival kicks off with Film Worker, the incredible true story of Stanley Kubrick's mysterious assistant. For more details, go to mdff.org.au. See you there. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. And it's time for our regular talk with Dr Margie Beavis, the Secretary of MAPW, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. First, Maggie, I saw an article last week titled Can You Think of Any Other Ways to Spend $716 Billion? That's near the top of Trump's wish list for 2019, his aggressive defence strategy to face off with China and Russia. And that's not taking into account the pressure on his so-called allies, including Australia, to increase their defence or offence spending to support US wars. Yeah, no, the American spending on defence is just extraordinary, and particularly extraordinary because they're about a, every year they're about a trillion dollars down. Their budget deficit, I think, this year is going to be something like 970 odd billion. That's just for one year. And what's also, they used to say that the US spend was more than the next seven countries combined in terms of defence spending, and they're now saying it's more than the next ten countries combined. It's about four times what China spends on defence, and more than ten times what Russia spends on defence. So. Um, I think it was Eisenhower back in the early 60s who warned of the growth of the military-industrial complex. Well, I think we're seeing the military-industrial complex blossom and blossom and blossom. It's a military-industrial political complex, I reckon. Nightmare. Mm. And the fact is that in America, just about every town 
every state depends on it. Yes. They've yes, either got a is. base yep. or they've got a factory. Yep, yep. And when you're spending this much of government money, then you can create all these people who think this is the only thing they can do. When there's some really nice research coming out of Brown University that says that if you spend a billion dollars on the military, you'd get much fewer jobs than if you do in education. I mean, if, for instance, one billion dollars, you get about 11,000 military jobs. You get more than double if you spend on education to about 26,500 jobs. And both clean energy and health are about one and a half times more jobs than you get in the military. So, in fact, spending this level is not only sort of terrible as a threat to global safety. I mean, really the U.S. gun problem at large. You know, they've got millions of guns. They're also getting millions of weapons. But it's also a real problem in terms of the job scheme that's creating are, are really inefficient and there's much better ways to do it with much better outcomes. And one worry about that story I read was part of it is this smaller, more flexible nuclear weapons. Oh, yeah. In the next 30 years, the current budget for nuclear weapons is $1.2 trillion. So that's $1,000 billion just for the nuclear weapons program. And I think in the next 10 years there, last time I looked at the figure, although it keeps growing, it was $460 billion in the next decade. So that's $46 billion a year just on nuclear weapons. So this government that talks to Korea, North Korea about denuclearization is, is so far from doing what it's proposing to North Korea. It's extraordinary. Let's talk more about that meeting last week. Was it? Was it last week? It seems a long time ago now. It does. It does. It does. The good thing out of that is, I mean, diplomacy is always <laughs> better than that the two of them threatening each other as they did last year with fire and fury and whatever else. And the other good thing is that the very provocative biannual military exercises that the South Koreas and the United States military had every six months on the, on the border of North Korea have been suspended temporarily. So that, from a peace perspective, that's really good to get them in dialogue and to actually reduce sort of very provocative exercises that kept happening. I think it's today or tomorrow Trump is sending off another bill to Congress to try and strengthen the sanctions against North Korea. So he's so contrary in what he says and what he does. It remains to be seen what denuclearization of this whole peninsula means. It would be wonderful if the war could end between South and North Korea. But anyway, we just have to watch this space. But uh, at least the, 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 the suspension of military exercises and war games is, is actually some progress and having them talk to each other is some progress. It just seems to me that he gave that up very easily, too easily. I think they both love attention. I mean, they're like sort of little kids in the candy store. They, they both, are. both want to be on the world stage so desperately. I think, I think the South Koreans were the first one to schmooze Trump by saying he should get a Nobel Peace Prize. I think it was very clever. Does envisage himself with getting a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, if Obama got Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> Donald Trump is the best president the U.S. has had ever. Definitely needs a Nobel Peace Prize. Perhaps that's where he sees this going. It's a bit like kids, isn't it? They're even being naughty, as long as you you notice, it doesn't matter if you get into trouble. Someone's noticing yes, you. Yes, yes. I, I, I think I mean, I someone, I can't remember where I read it, certainly not the original idea of mine, but someone said that Trump's whole modus operandi was chaos. That, you know, you just kept being unpredictable, create chaos and then take advantage of the chaos. He's certainly done that, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Looking at war profiteering, when we're talking about the universities, I know you've spoken about Melbourne University and and the work that MAPW has been doing there, but you hear more and more stories that it's not just Melbourne University, it's happening in virtually 
universities in every state of Australia. Yeah, it's really a combination, I think, of universities being starved for funds. I mean, the, the universities have much less Commonwealth funding than they used to, so they're sort of pretty desperate to get industry partnerships and monies coming into the universities. But also the government, I think and it was the Labor government, established a specific body to encourage universities and defence research, and I think the, um, the government defence innovation arm is now the second biggest research and development budget in the government sector and the new thing of the federal government spent 3.8 billion underwriting expansion of arms exports i mean this is, this is the money that's being thrown into defense we are following the americans quite closely and i think it's very sad because you know there's some irony that melbourne university is moving its engineering school to fisherman's bend onto the former gmh site and you do really wonder whether the reason that the weapons companies are getting such generous treatment is about much better lobbyists and donors than the car companies it's very in sydney university some of your listeners i'm sure would have seen a very courageous graduate student when she was graduating not only held up a sign saying shame on you sydney uni get out of weapons supporting weapons dealers but also gave a really good speech on that and if people want to go to the MAPW Facebook page they can see that speech we just put up recently I mean good on her but it's sort of been a slow burn over since about 2010 and Victorian government has partnered up with the federal government also to push universities to um, spend money on defence so it's, it is uh, insidious and growing. What do you know about what's planned for Fisherman's Bend? Well I know that there's the engineering school I know that the British Aerospace Systems and Lockheed Martin are involved in part. I don't know the specific project. I think the Lockheed Martin project, there's a, there's a student who's a postdoc who's looking at sensor technologies and drone technologies, which for Lockheed Martin is the largest weapons manufacturer in the world and involved in the drones that are killing people in Afghanistan and other countries we're not at war with. Um, it's pretty depressing. But what's actually, ha I, think, I think it's going to cost about a billion dollars, just under a billion dollars and that the site is adjacent to the Defence Science and Technology Group. So there is a push for the engineering school to be very closely aligned with the defence system, and that's, that's concerning. Has there been a move to speak to the upper echelons at Melbourne University to voice your concerns about what's happening? Yes, yes, yes. We've had, we're in the process of getting more meetings. We've had meetings with various... You know, the MABW student group had some terrific meetings last year with the... Um, Vice-Chancellors to do with research, to do with ethics and to do with engineering. We've met with the Chancellor, Alan Myers. We've met with, uh, we've also met with the Vice-Chancellors to do with, I think called Deputy Vice-Chancellor, sorry, who is involved in determining research funding. We've just met with the professor in the engineering school to talk to him about the ethics of the engineering students partnering with weapons companies in furthering weapons research. And there's a new dean coming for the engineering school who we're going to speak to and there's also a new vice-chancellor. We're going to try and see the old vice-chancellor before they switch over in October, but we'll also go and see the new vice-chancellor and just keep the pressure on because this isn't... I mean, it's... it's the thing that's most hypocritical about it is that they, they put their students, their master's students, their PhD students to really very rigorous ethics applications whenever they want to do research. And this is, you know, that nothing, no one is going to get harmed. There seems to be very little ethical review of any partnership with companies and um, it's very it's corrupt, well corrupt is too strong a word, it's just not ethical, it's not developing weapon systems that are going to go on and create sort of death and misery 
on the one hand, when you're preaching ethics to your students, seems hypocritical as well as damaging. So what do they answer you when you put forward your views? Depends who we speak to. It was interesting when we did the first speech to the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, James McCloskey, he said to the students, you couldn't tell what the research would end up being used for. Well, that's a pretty astounding answer when you're partnering with the biggest weapons company in the world. They can't be that naive, can they? Well, you, 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 you beg his belief sometimes. And then when we went back after the students had, had given us that answer, they said, well, actually, no, Lockheed Martin's not only the biggest defence company and the biggest weapons manufacturer in the world, it's also historically one of the most corrupt companies in the most corrupt industry and also was responsible through subcontractors for providing interrogators at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay. But also he said, you know, he said, you know, sensor technology and drones, what's, what's the harm in that? Well, you just have to look at the concerns the United Nations have about lethal autonomous weapon systems, which they are concerned are going to become the next weapon of mass destruction because the development of machine learning, artificially intelligent drones, they'd probably be very tiny little drones sort of, you know, just a couple of inches across, but airborne drones that can carry a targeted small explosive enough to kill somebody. If you've got technology that means these drones can actually identify people and go and zap them, or you can release thousands or millions of these drones all at once and they can be autonomous in how they travel. These are, these are weapons of the future that there is increasing concern about at the United Nations in terms of the technology is well ahead of the policy and well ahead of the political understanding of these weapons. And here we have Melbourne University partnering with the very organisation that's the very company that's going to develop them. I mean, British Aerospace, whether this is true or not, whether they actually do or not, have said we will not develop lethal autonomous weapon systems. Lockheed Martin has made no such undertaking. It's a nightmare, so, isn't it? Yeah, so we've actually we've pointed that out and we're yeah, in the process of doing another round of, of visits this year. Looking at Australian soldiers, there's been a few stories lately about SAS and commandos behaving like they were... Well, as I said before, that's, they're doing what they were taught to do overseas. Well... I think, yeah, it's appalling what the reports you read of these soldiers, but I think the bigger picture to sort of step back from it is these soldiers are put in incredibly difficult situations and nobody, whilst they're reviewing the individual behaviours, nobody's reviewing the sort of collective decision to go into places like Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, what, what were we thinking in 2003 to go into Iraq? It was a politically motivated invasion and around a million Iraqis died. And nobody's... We, um, the British had had a Chilcot inquiry. We haven't had any sort of inquiry. And if people are going to make a, a big song and dance about these soldiers who should adhere to the rules of war, they should be... that are not condoning what happened. But I am saying that a much bigger war crime was actually going in the first place. And there's been no review of that. That's been pushed, though, hasn't it, for quite a number of years? Yes, the, the campaign for a war... for an inquiry into the Iraq war was run out of candle by some very illustrious people for some years and then that morphed into another organisation which your listeners might want to look up called Australians for War Powers Reform. And this group is basically saying that it shouldn't be the Prime Minister who decides to go to war, that we should have to have a debate with both Houses of Parliament voting to decide whether or not we enter a war because certainly we don't seem to have learnt from the war in Iraq or other, other conflicts that rushing in to just be joined at the hip with the Americans is often a really bad idea, not just for the people who are invading, but also for Australia itself. 
I know you'd like to quote a, a Lowy poll. Lowy's not normally a, sort of a, an institution we talk about much on programs like this. <laughs> True enough. So what was I the... I suppose what's interesting is the thing that caught my eye with that was that a number of things that the, the Australians trust in America to act responsibly in the world is the lowest it's ever been. And only 30% are confident that Trump will do the right thing. Yet on the other hand, 76% think the US alliance is important or fairly important. So it's interesting that they can sift out Trump versus the US alliance. And you know, yeah, there's interesting set of figures. The other set of figures that really struck me was that when they were asked how much did Australia spend on foreign aid, the average individual thought that we spent 14% of our budget on foreign aid. And then when they asked what Australians should spend on foreign aid, they said it should be 10% of the budget, when in fact the actual percentage is less than 1%. It's 0.8% and it's being cut and cut and cut again. It's going down to 0.7%. So it fascinated me that, that the perception of how much we're helping overseas and the reality of how stingy we are and how far we are below the recommended levels for OECD countries was just very um, graphic. And of yeah. course, over the years, a big focus of our overseas aid has been the Pacific nations. Mm. They're cutting that to the bone, and yet they complain all the time that China's moving in to fill the void. That when they announced a billion dollars for the Paris Climate Agreement, that came out of our foreign aid budget. That wasn't new money. That was just switching it from one, one set of poor people over to the climate budget, which is pretty cynical as well. But this this push, you know, we have to have to condemn China for moving in. It's yeah, what do they expect? Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. If they want to help communities and stabilise communities and keep people able to live where they wish to live, they need to help them. And um, yes, if we withdraw, what do they expect? And these are the countries that are really focusing on what they're going to do when when the oceans keep rising and yeah, with climate yeah, change. Yeah. And and what's I mean, we're boosting the defence budget by way, way more than we're stripping from the aid budget. But Tony Abbott did say that when we stripped the aid budget, it was going to go to Australia's defence, which is pretty pretty uh, awful. You think that foreign aid helps prevent conflict and defence, obviously, it just addresses the consequences of stripping foreign aid, amongst other things. Tell me about climate change and war and Nigeria. Well, look, there's a, there's a Muslim group of farmers who've been farming for years in northern Nigeria... And because of drought and lack of rain, about in the northern states up to 70, three quarters of their grasslands has gone back to desert. And the water source is all disappearing. So these Muslim farmers are moving down into the central regions, which have got more water, where there's Christians and farming their cattle there. And so there's now starting to be war that's a combination of sort of religious, but also the, the farmland and the, and the fertility and being able to actually use the farms is sort of key. So there's sort of this interface of where the migration and the shift of where is viable farmland is now leading to conflict between religious groups and is now morphing into a religious war. But it certainly sounds like it started in, in the amongst the cattle herds, herders sort of across West and Central Africa. And you can see similar situations happening in other parts of the world. All right, Margie, is there anything else you'd like to comment on today? No, I think that's... Yeah, thank you for having me on. <laughs> I think it's it's just, just having to continually point out the, the spread of influence of the weapons companies and work on what we can do to, to counter that. 
Sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And that's Dr. Margie Beavis, who's the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Coming up to five o'clock, and you could be listening on your old analogue radio, 8.55am. You could be listening digital, 3CR. You could be having your computer turned on to 3cr.org.au. You could be streaming, listening to it right now. You could be saving it to a podcast to listen to whenever you feel like. So there's lots of ways. There is another one, but I can't think of it at the moment. But there's lots of ways, and to find out those extra ways, it's 3cr.org.au. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Do you want to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? Ames Australia is a leading education provider offering government funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. Ames Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. Ames Australia is a 3CR supporter. Twenty eighteen marks twenty years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjadme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net. A 3CR supporter. And I'm speaking now with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And Bob, let's talk first about the serious problems facing bees in Australia and overseas as well in some countries. Niganoids. These are these nasty um, chemicals. I recall my dad using Blackleaf 40 in our back garden in the 1950s and 60s, warning me that if I got a drop in my eye, I'd be dead. That was 40% nicotine sulphate and, of course, the neonics, the chemicals that are now banned in Europe but still used in Australia, are um, also synthetic nicotine-based pesticides which are disrupting 
particularly bees, which are essential for pollinating crops and so on. Of course, the other off-target casualties are all sorts of insects that play a vital part in the ecology of our environments, but uh, also uh, pollinate plants as well. They're used by horticulturalists a lot, and uh, in Australia, of course, our bees can be exposed to um, dust from seeds, which these days are often coated with pesticides before you even plant them, or from the pollen and nectar on the plants that are growing using treated seed, or indeed in Australia there are some uses for which you can still spray. We've got concerns here as well as for all our insect species, which are uh, absolutely critical not only for pollinating our food crop plants, but also looking after our ecology. The Europeans just... Uh, earlier this year decided finally that there would be a total phase-out. But meanwhile, we've got um, Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority saying that it's done a um, weight of evidence balanced risk assessment, that it considered the full range of the risks and that it thinks that the impacts are manageable or can be minimised through uh, clear instructions on the labels for the users, restricting the uses and giving general safety directions. Of course, this means that they would monitor and ensure compliance, which, of course, is uh, just completely impossible in the Australian situation where the regulator is under resource and state authorities take responsibility for actually implementing these laws. Is there already a decline in bees? Well, Australia is still saying that there is no problem here, that we haven't had colony collapse disease that's been so prevalent in Europe uh, and in North America too where uh, whole colonies of bees will leave the hive and um, will never be seen again where beekeepers are having to replace their whole hives season by season. I, I just think we're um, storing up a big problem waiting to happen and that uh, we should get on with it and uh, get rid of those things out of our production systems particularly as some of our major trading partners like the Europeans have already got rid of them and if we get any residues in there of course it will disrupt trade as well as our environment. As long as they replace it with something that's not toxic as well? Well of course and um, I think that uh, the organic and systems that are already in place and being used even more extensively by more and more growers year on year are very good and then there are other management systems that uh, farmers should be adopting rather than zapping everything with uh, potent chemicals. We want to get away from the practices of the 50s and 60s that my dad used in our backyard have, of course, now been applied on broad acre agriculture and in horticulture. Look for new ways of managing weed and insect problems. Does it affect all bees or just certain types of bees? Because I know there are native bees and there are the European bees. Yes, well, they're all targets for these very toxic chemicals, unfortunately. And, um, of course, our native bees and our suite of other insects, which are important in management systems, particularly those that uh, predate on problem insects, that would manage the uh, environment more effectively without chemicals are also um, killed well. So the whole system goes out of balance and unfortunately then uh, you have to spray more and more often at higher doses and that's when real problems start to kick in from all directions. I think our researchers and development 
scientists need to be on a different track. They need to be looking for um, softer ways, management systems for uh, managing the problems in agriculture. And, of course, that's what regenerative agriculture is on about as well, looking after soils and making sure that uh, the microorganisms on which the productivity of soils depend and the micronutrients are actually looked after as well. Are they, in a sense, looking for the easy way out by not banning them and trying to do it properly? Well, of course, yes, it is the head-in-the-sand kind of approach. Um, Chemical age emerged post-Second World War in particular. After the war, of course, there was a huge chemical infrastructure that um, was then applied to civil uses of of chemicals, and we've seen, of course, spin-offs into things like the production of plastics, which are now polluting every waterway in the world as well. So we need to get past the chemical age. We need to start investing some real resources and thinking about how future generations are going to be fed, housed and clothed without the use of um, chemicals because, of course, oil, on which the chemical industries are based as well, is um, depleting fast and is going to run out. Those systems need to be developed and we need to be transitioning into them just as we're doing in the energy area, getting away from the fossil fuels and getting into renewables. We need to do the same in food production systems, getting away from dependence on uh, increasingly scarce fossil fuels into those sustainable systems that will see future generations into the future able to feed, house and clothe themselves. We owe it to the future. Absolutely. Viruses. We've all had a virus of some sort. Scientists, I suppose they are, they're trying to make their own, or they have made their own. This is the new area of synthetic biology that you're talking about where uh, organisms are able to be created from scratch from the actual building blocks of DNA and chemistry into, into organisms that have never existed before. The military-industrial complex starting to get quite jittery about this, putting out reports saying that bioweapons uh, made using these new techniques could be on the horizon, that so much information out there now with uh, both unskilled and skilled people doing biohacking, for instance, mucking around with DNA in their kitchens and bathrooms and uh, informal laboratories, that uh, trying to contain a threat of terror groups and so on, getting hold of these techniques and the materials to do it, uh, is going to be uh, a very serious challenge. Of course, it's a bit like um, a monopolist saying they don't want any competition because uh, the main funders of the research on the new bioweapons and supposedly, of course, defence against them are people like the US Department of Defence. And we've seen just recently that they've come down to Australia and they're funding research here on a new area of um, genetic research too called gene drives, which is... uh, a toxic way of um, controlling feral animal species. The US uh, military has given money to CSIO and the University of Adelaide to research the elimination of rodents on offshore islands around Australia uh, as a way of um, getting some new research done while holding out the possibility of uh, managing those uh, destructive species, the, the cane toad and the carp and the rodents in our environment that, uh, of course, do cause ecological disruption here. But, of course, they're talking about 
this research as being benign when, of course, it has the dark side as well. Well, Bob, once the genie's out of the bottle, as it obviously is, people are making, can make it in their kitchens and their bathrooms or whatever, how are they going to police it? Well, that's a very, very leading question, and we've been on to our regulator here in Australia, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, saying that uh, all of the people, like uh, Biofoundry in Sydney, which is uh, an informal laboratory for biohackers, many of whom have no training at all in this area, that they should be required to have supervision, to have an institutional biosafety committee like every other university and research institution has. And unfortunately, at this point, the regulator is saying to us, oh, we're keeping an eye on them, uh, they're not doing anything troublesome, and uh, we're allowing them to continue without any official supervision. Uh, that's not good enough, and we're certainly screaming very loudly about it. I mean, when you've got warnings from people like the US Department of Defense and the CIA and our own secret services here, I think that they should be taken seriously and that the people who are doing this kind of work should be more officially supervised. Of course, their argument back to us, I presume, will be, oh, yes, but if we try to over-regulate them, we'll drive them underground and they'll do their work in secret. I don't really buy that argument. I just think that, you know, if universities and research institutions are required to have an informal committee that oversees and supervises what's done in the laboratories of Australia, then everybody should be subject to the same rules. But at the moment, they're not, and they should be. And what is the government body saying about this? Well, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, in writing back to us a couple of weeks ago by email, simply said, at the moment we have an eye on these people. We are happy that um, nothing untoward is happening. All is A-OK, and we aren't going to require them to have any official supervision uh, at this stage. That's how it stands at the moment, but um, we need to build a, a campaign and a movement, I think, for a, a more serious watch on people like Meow Meow, who is the guy who runs Biofoundry in Sydney, just so that the public can be reassured that no uh, research that's likely to lead to either public health hazards or rather more troublesome things like leading on to bioweapons uh, will happen. I mean, we've already had previously with um, feral animal biocontrol research that was done in the 1990s, uh, around 2000, they created a virus which killed all their experimental animals and they published a paper saying that this particular procedure that they had done uh, was a potential bioweapon. That was an early wake-up call that should have been heeded then but wasn't. You know, when it's happening in official laboratories as well, We've got the um, high-level animal health laboratory in Geelong doing the work with rodents on um, the rodent feral biocontrol funded by the U.S. military, and we've got the University of Adelaide involved as well talking about releasing things onto offshore islands is just a hoax. What we saw with the um, Kalichi virus, for instance, which was to control rabbits, was that they tested it on Wardang Island off South Australia, saying, oh, that will be secure, we'll be able to do our research here and that'll be fine. Within days, it was on the mainland and was going through rabbit populations prematurely. So things do go wrong, 
and I just think we need better supervision from our regulators. That's their job, and they should be doing it more strenuously and in a more precautionary way than they have so far been prepared to do. We've got the warnings there. We should take notice of them. And I'd imagine, too, that plenty of things go wrong when they genetically muck around with farm animals, too. I mean, they're subject to enough stress and cruelty, I believe, without, you know, producing. I remember years ago when they were mucking around with cows, milking cows, to get the the increased yield, and it was just absolutely cruel what they were doing. Yes, yes, the injectable growth hormone, of course, is um, being considered at the moment for introduction into Australian dairy herds. Again, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority has had an application from Eli Lilly, uh, which now owns the um, rights to the bovine growth hormone, who introduced it into Australian dairy herds. It's really been not much heard of, but uh, that is going on. There's been recent work, particularly in the UK, in making pigs more uh, resistant to certain reproductive and respiratory diseases. There uh, is work going on on chickens with an extra gene to try to protect them against avian flu. But these diseases are generated in intensive agricultural situations where you've got battery hens or you've got cows that are contained in uh, or pigs as well in very confined environments and it becomes necessary to routinely treat them for the diseases which are going to kill them otherwise. And now, of course, with um, resistance to the antibiotics and so on that have been so widely used and are now affecting the human population as well, uh, you see these um, new research projects that are attempting to build into the organisms themselves a resistance to these diseases through genetic manipulation. It's just a roller coaster um, of uh, new methods to try to treat a problem that is a management problem at its core. If those animals were out in the environment on pasture and uh, living a, a better life and being, a health, being healthier animals, then we wouldn't have these problems that need to be treated. One of the latest applications to the Office of Gene Technology Regulator is... Um, for uh, crocodiles in Northern Territory that are now farmed for their skins to treat uh, the problems, the health problems that they experience as a result of intensive farming up in our Northern Territory. And this is not a small industry. I saw just as a, <laughs> a side bar that um, in Hong Kong, somebody recently paid $320,000 for a crocodile skin uh, purse encrusted with diamonds. So this is an industry that's getting going, that's looking for ways to, again, protect the animals that are in housed in conditions that are not suitable to, to their survival unless you um, start treating them by genetically manipulating them or creating vaccines to uh, treat their diseases. And as you've pointed out, it's not necessarily animals on land or in fast-breeding well, sheds. It's the fish that they're fish farms that they've got now. There's very well, few fish that people are eating now that was actually caught in the ocean, so I believe. Yes, well, of course now um, fish farms are home to uh, something like 50% of all the fish in the world. Most of the fish that you get in the market has been farmed, 
and in those intensive production systems, you've got the same kinds of problems, fouling of the water that causes disease, transmission of disease between fish that are housed much more intensively than they ever were before. In North America now, we, of course, have the so-called aquabounty uh, salmon, which is um, also genetically engineered to grow very much faster than its um, natural mates. So it reaches marketable weight twice as quickly, but this um, is, is clearly not acceptable to the public because the product of these fish is not labelled. However, they've started selling them into the Canadian market where they're not required to be labelled. And I can imagine, although salmon farmers in Tasmania have said that they won't be using the genetically manipulated varieties of salmon, uh, that sometime soon there'll be um, some smart people who will want to bring them down here as well. And it just fouls up the, the, the sea too. Well, in those contained uh, pens where the fish are housed, yes, you can create disease and, of course, just from the effluence and the feed that's poured into the, into the sea, you've got problems. Another genetic engineering connection, of course, is that there's the new Omega-3 canola, which has uh, just been approved, which will be grown in Australia, primarily for use in, as animal feed, not for uh, human consumption initially. That's another question mark as well because fish normally get the omega-3s which are in their flesh and in their oil from eating brill and other microorganisms in the sea but in the absence of that and when they're fed uh, these artificial diets as farm animals are and are treated like farm animals of course they're not getting those natural ingredients that they require for their good health and now we're going to genetically engineer canola so that it can be poured into those fish farms uh, in order to restore the omega-3s that depend on. So uh, the whole thing becomes a cycle of destruction, a cycle of pollution, and ultimately a cycle of disease. We shouldn't be surprised when it comes back to, uh, bounces back to uh, harm human beings as well as the animals that we mistreat in these intensive production systems. I don't think there's hardly a, a monthly talk by you, Bob, without Roundup being mentioned. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, the Roundup Ready story this month is to do with the um, genetically manipulated wheat plants that Monsanto grew late last century in Oregon and the USA. They stopped their GM wheat research in 2004 because so many farmers across um several continents objected and said they would never use it. However, the wheat trials that they ran in Oregon, in the north of the USA, have, have come back to bite them as well. Uh, just last week, the Roundup Ready uh, GM wheat uh, was found on a roadside in Canada 300 kilometres from where it was trialled originally and where uh, there's been contamination over the years which has caused disruption of trade in wheat out of the USA. Asia especially, Japan and Korea and a number of other countries will not accept any genetically manipulated product that hasn't been approved by them. And as a result, they've recently suspended Canadian wheat exports because of this finding of um, the GM wheat from the trials 15 or 20 years later uh, on a roadside. It was also found in wheat fields as I said, in 2013 and 2015 in Oregon 
and uh, that led to a suspension of trade as well. How do they identify it? Well, it uh, won't be killed by Roundup. Okay. So when you spray your roadside, for instance, they've done recently, the wheat continues to grow because it's got a, a gene in it which uh, resists the application of the glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. This is how farm managers and managers of the roadsides have tweaked that um, there's something out there that's uh, not dying when you apply the Roundup to it. Normally, Roundup will kill any anything that's green, and when a plant stays standing, it's obviously got resistance. So uh, that's how it's discovered and uh, reported. And then, of course, your trading partners say, oh, hang on a minute, we don't want that. And this uh, is exactly the kind of situation that Australia could easily get itself into as well uh, by growing GM canola because we've got um, very special, very advantageous access to the European market because we are able still to segregate enough GM-free canola to supply their demands there. But if that becomes seriously contaminated with the GM varieties, then I think we could see the premiums disappear and that very valuable market also fall over. There are ecological, social and trade consequences for every introduction of a genetically manipulated crop. And yet we now see more and more coming online, uh, particularly the new genetic engineering techniques such as CRISPR and others that are saying, oh, well, this is not really genetically manipulated, so we are not planning to regulate as we have done in the past, and this is going to create a whole new ferment as well, which, uh, of course, the global movement for GM-free are taking very seriously and are working on. This is why we're also, of course, looking for public support for our work. It's not just round up in the rural areas, it's round up in the urban areas. Well, of course, yes, councils use um, Roundup extensively on sidewalks, on uh, parks and other golf courses are another major user of um, these kinds of toxic chemicals to keep their grass looking nice. And the case in America where the, the groundkeeper? Yes, well that might make a difference. We've got the situation where um, uh, Wayne Johnson, who was a groundkeeper in a school who's just 46 years old, is dying. He's got... Um, very serious illness and uh, as a result in California if you're going to die you've got uh, a case to take to court they expedite it it reminds me of the asbestos cases in Australia where um, the um, the asbestos company for years delayed bringing anybody allowing anybody to come into court until the people who are suffering from asbestosis died and couldn't take their cases in Wayne Johnson's case it is being expedited. He's the first one to get into court in California over his exposure to uh, Roundup as a, as a groundskeeper in a school. The lawyer that's taking the case has got thousands of other people who are also in a similar situation. So if Mr Johnson's case is successful, then we can expect a huge number of Americans and perhaps people worldwide coming into the court saying my non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, which is killing me, was caused by Roundup and um, I want my family, even though I'm dying, I want my family compensated for my illness and death. So it's a landmark case. Uh, it's going to be decided quite soon and we're hoping that it will be successful. 
because, of course, Monsanto has now been taken over by Bayer, and it's very unclear also uh, whether Bayer is going to pick up the tab for the thousands of cases against Monsanto for the impacts of its toxic chemicals are going to be settled or not. Bayer uh, is also a very a company with a very long history of um, dark behaviour dating back to the First World War but also in the Second World War, of course, making those chemicals for the German gas chambers. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out now that Bayer has taken over and consumed Monsanto, getting together to become the biggest agrochemical and seed company in the world. I think that we're going to have some serious trouble with the monopolisation of seed and chemical ownership in the next few years, and it's another issue that seems to be a sleeper. I would have imagined that the Australian farming community would have been up in arms about it, but we've hardly heard a peep out of them. And when the uh, price of seed and the conditions on what, which seed is sold to farmers and to gardeners in Australia starts to change and become more monopolised and exclusive and restrictive, uh, I think we could be in serious trouble there too. A bit late then? Yes, but we've seen a concentration of ownership going on now for several years. So just four companies now own 60% of the global seed supply and 70% of agrochemicals. And that concentration will only continue with further takeovers. So look out for Bayer and Monsanto, Syngenta and ChemChina and Dow DuPont, along with BASF as the major players that are going to be squeezing farmers, shoppers and the whole community over the next while by their um, monopoly ownership and control, particularly of the global seed supply. Finally, Bob, 30 years young, the struggle goes on to keep the organisation going. Yes, Genefics uh, had its 30th anniversary in January. We've been working for GM Free constantly since then. And of course, yes, we again need to hold our hand out this year for support from the community for our vital work. So if anybody is interested to chip in, please go on the donate page on the Gene Ethics website. All the options are there. You can donate, you can join online, or you can give me a call on 1300 133 868, and I'm happy to um, help you through the process of um, giving to and supporting GM Free and Gene Ethics for another year. Thank you very much. And thanks to Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Today, a focus on... Bougainville and Papua New Guinea with Christina Hill from Jubilee Australia where she is acting executive director. And beginning with Bougainville, Christina, where the government of PNG and the autonomous Bougainville government agreed to hold an independent referendum in June next year, you recently visited Bougainville. I see two issues there preparing for the referendum and second the Panguna mine whether or not it will reopen. Do you see those two as connecting issues? Absolutely. And can you explain how they're being addressed? Yes, 
so out of the you know the ten year conflict during the 1990s, the Bougainville Peace Agreement was the, you know the agreement that signed the peace, so to speak. And one of the key things in the Bougainville Peace Agreement was that by June next year, as it happens, um, Bougainville will go to a referendum to determine its future, namely whether or not it stays in Papua New Guinea or not. And this really reflects, I guess, you know, historical desires from many people in Bougainville to actually become independent rather than part of PNG. And tied up in the question of the referendum is the question of mining. Because for many people in Bougainville, particularly the political leadership, there's an argument being made that an independent Bougainville is only possible with the revenues that mining might bring. Now just read from a, an article I read recently, the headline is Bougainville Reopening Mine Risks Reopening Old Wounds. The 2019 Bougainville referendum could see the controversial Panguna mine reopened, offering both attractive opportunities and terrible consequences. So could you elaborate on those attractive opportunities and then talk about what this writer says are the terrible consequences? Um, I guess the key opportunity is that there's money to be made, potentially. Um, although we'll question, you know, who actually benefits and whether that's the right people. So for, you know, mining companies who kind of look at that old mine site, there is money to be made, potentially. So it's a massive copper deposit. Um, one of the largest in the world. And even though it has been mined over a number of decades, kind of you know, pre-crisis, there is still copper there, although we don't know how much. So there's money to be made by a mining company who has both the financial and technical backing and, of course, approval from Bougainville government to do that. Also, as I said, some within Bougainville government say that the revenues that, you know, the reopening of the Panguna mine would bring enables them to actually fund an independent state. So, you know, these revenues could be through taxes, for example, or royalties. So kind of standard processes, I guess, in terms of how governments make money from mining. But again, we would question whether future Bougainville government would actually get a whole lot of revenue from the mine. So what we know is that Often, you know, there's really big multinational mining companies. They negotiate very generous tax arrangements with host governments, which in reality means that often governments don't get the revenues that they think they would like to get or that they might expect. I think there's real risks around the expectations of money being made from a reopened Panguna and the extent to which the Bougainville government and Bougainville people would actually benefit. But that said, I can, you know, we totally understand why it seems at first sight a fairly attractive proposition. But there are significant risks with this. As we've talked about in the introduction, you know, the Panguna mine was the trigger for the Bougainville conflict. And that was really around environmental concerns and also um, grievances amongst many landowners that they weren't actually receiving, you know, fair compensation for their lands being mined. Triggered the conflict. 30 years ago, and it may well do so again because a lot of the grievances are not yet resolved. But more broadly, I think people look back at the conflict and they feel very deeply and strongly that, you know, the conflict impacted them at the time and it still does today. You know, so the scars are very deep. So I think many people see a reopened Panguna as reopening these old wounds, which, you know, potentially triggers further conflict. But even if it didn't trigger further conflict, which obviously we would hope would not be the case, people would feel that very deeply. You know, the hurt is still there. So I think there's a real risk that, you know, yeah, reopening these old wounds, as I've said. 
Just remind us how many people did die during that conflict. Yeah, estimates of up to 20,000 people. It's obviously a huge number. I mean, that's just, you know, that's kind of hard to comprehend. But even, you know, all the more so given that the population of Bougainville was about 200,000 people. So that's one in 10 people who died, either as a direct result of the conflict or because of the embargo, you know, that kind of followed. So that's probably not a person in Bougainville today who does not have direct experience or experience through their family of the conflict. So... The thing that, you know, triggered all of this, you know, for it to kind of reappear is very distressful, I think, for a lot of people. And you can think of nearly a generation of children who missed out on proper schooling. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a real issue today. So, you know, very young children today, you know, to the extent that there are schools, you know, functioning in Bougainville, they're at school, but their parents didn't go to school. So that, you know, that has an impact on both, you know, these children today, but the parents themselves. You know, and their ability to potentially get formal employment to the extent that formal employment exists in Bougainville and to, I think, participate more fully in public life. You know, so, so, you know, absolutely massive and far-reaching consequences from the conflict, yeah, absolutely. And the environmental concerns, uh, the rivers that were ruined, the, the land that was destroyed by the tailings, dams and whatever they put down the rivers, was that ever fixed up? No, no. So I was in Bougainville earlier this year and actually visited the Panguna Mine, which, you know, it's it's quite a site. It's, you know, it's a massive mine pit. Um, Although, interestingly, you know, there's, you know, there's things growing in it. The jungle is kind of taking it back. Um, And the other thing that kind of, you know, I found fascinating is the fact that people kind of live amongst the old mine site. You know, the old accommodation block where the mine workers used to live You know, just regular people are now living there today or in kind of makeshift kind of houses kind of down amongst the mine pit, which is fascinating. But to go back to your question, yeah, you know, the terrible pollution that was caused has not been fixed up. So today the main river remains clogged with waste from the mine. Um, And, you know, one particular sort of smaller river that comes out of the mine site or the mine pit itself, it stains the rocks blue because of the copper deposit. So there is ongoing pollution. So that means that those waters, these rivers, are you know, probably are not fit for drinking. They would not support any fishery and they probably wouldn't be supporting the growing of food in riverbank gardens. Does this mean that whole communities were uprooted? Absolutely, yep. So communities, you know, on what was once the actual mine pit, absolutely, they've been moved. Now, I think slowly people are, in some kind of locations are kind of reclaiming what was once theirs. So they've kind of they've made their homes amongst the remains of, you know, the mine infrastructure and so on. So there is a bit of that. But absolutely, people are uprooted, both, you know, physically, but also, I think, spiritually and in terms of their livelihoods. So very, yeah, like really far-reaching consequences for these people. And these people have not been compensated, they've not been supported, and yet they're kind of faced with the prospect that this mine may reopen, you know, at some point in the future. And we have to remember that the matrilineal landowners are opposed to it? Absolutely. So last year there were a number of protests around Arawa and and Panguna itself. Arawa is the main town near Panguna. That was led by women, basically calling for a moratorium on mining um, and saying quite clearly that Women's voices have been marginalised. They were when the mine was originally opened um, and they remain marginalised today. And as you say, Bougainville is matrilineal. Women actually have enormous power and authority, including to make decisions over their land 
yet women's voices are not properly being heard in the kind of, you know, decision-making processes. Women are actually really strong advocates for, you know, their children, their land, and so on. Well, they were the main ones who suffered during the war, I imagine. Absolutely, um, both in terms of just, you know, changes to their lives. You know, how do you raise children, for example, when you no longer have a home or where, you know, the whole island was in, you know, conflict, really. So that's, you know, enormously difficult. But also in terms of just violence directed towards women, which we still still see today. So today, you know, the level of violence against women is appallingly high in Bougainville. You know, the reasons for this are complicated, but one is that, you know, a whole generation of men were raised in, you know, a time of conflict. So, yes, so women, you know, enormously impacted and, as I said, also marginalised from decision-making despite, you know, the traditional power and authority that they actually hold. Just referring back to the possibility that the mine is reopened, I was told a couple of years ago that it would probably take 10 years to actually bring it back to operations and it would cost billions. Absolutely. I mean, the mine as it currently exists is not anywhere close to being functional. You know, equipment would need to be replaced. You know, a whole lot of environmental clean-up ought to happen. And I think, you know, a lot of work would need to be done to figure out, well, you know, what exactly is the size of the remaining deposit? So all of that. So, you know, if the people of Bougainville decided that, in fact, they see Panguna as important for their economic future, which, you know, is well within their rights to make their decision, and if the Bougainville government was to kind of issue the required licences, it would still be many, many years away before that mine could actually be operational. They need to secure financing to do all the things that are necessary to kind of get it to a stage where it could operate. So in terms of, you know, the link between the mine and, you know, next year's independence referendum, a Panguna mine cannot actually fund Bougainville's independence in the short term simply because it could not be operating in the short term. So the challenge then is for Bougainville, how does it raise the revenues needed to fund its future in the absence of a mine, at least in the short term? Are the people talking about that? A little bit, yeah. So when I was there, you know, people... One of the key messages that I heard was that, you know, firstly, Panguna can't be the answer to everything. And the second thing I heard over and over again is the fact that in Bougainville, people are already doing these, you know, all sorts of things. You know, they grow things. People talked about the fact that you plant something in the ground and it just grows. So the potential of the agriculture sector, and including within that the cocoa sector, is enormous. So at the moment... Cocoa, for example, is a really important source of income for many people. Something like 20,000 families actually grow cocoa for export. So there are enormous enormous opportunities to kind of further develop that particular industry. You know, examples could be to support the development of local cooperatives, which would enable Bougainvillean growers to get a better price for the cocoa. Um, You know, potentially projects around value adding so that they're not just exporting cocoa as a commodity but potentially um, exporting to more niche markets where they get a better price or even maybe actually you know making their own chocolate for export so that's one example and then you know across the agriculture sector you know again there's enormous potential including for export but the other thing I think to keep in mind is that at the moment the local economy depends and you know very much thrives on what people grow and sell locally so I think the challenge is how to kind of turn that into something that state in the sense of, you know, the government and then the services that it ought to be providing, you know, how that kind of agriculture sector can then support that. Well, then you've got to have the infrastructure and the roads, and I know how difficult it is on 
PNG. Yeah, the roads are not great. So, you know, there's all sorts of challenges. But also if you're looking, for example, say, to exporting particular products, you know, thinking about, well, what's the demands of the kind of market, you know? So, for example, if Australia was to, you know, import, I don't know, say, fruits, for example, it's probably not a very good example, but, you know, what are, what are our requirements around, you know, biosecurity, you know, how can Bougainville actually market some of its products to export markets? So there's a whole range of things that are necessary that, with support, are entirely achievable. What about tourism? Oh, oh yeah. I, I mean, I think there's huge potential. It's a beautiful country. It's absolutely amazing. You know, Bougainville would not be, you know, a destination of choice for many tourists, but for a lot of people I think it could be because, one, it's beautiful. You know, there's opportunities I would have thought around, you know, kind of ecotourism, hiking, bird watching, you know, those sorts of things, but also cultural, you know, kind of cultural exchanges. It's an amazing, fascinating country. You know, it's very close to Australia. If it was to become independent, it would be, you know, one of our newest neighbours. So the opportunities for Australians to actually visit Bougainville to learn about the country are huge. But again, you know, support is needed. So, you know, it's developing kind of networks of guest houses and lodges. It's training people to kind of provide, you know, potentially, you know, the guiding kind of services that people like, those sorts of things. But again, enormous potential. One that, you know, a large number of people could actually benefit from. And I think kind of going back to mining, what the mining sector kind of says and governments often kind of parrot is the fact that mining creates jobs. And yes, it does create some jobs, but not that many. You know, the people who actually benefit directly from the mining sector is a very small number. Whereas if you look at things like potentially tourism or your agriculture, that's a lot broader based. You know, a lot of people can, you know, what they currently do, but more so could with support. You know, a lot of people actually engage in agriculture and benefit from that. And similarly with tourism, you know, the potential for a larger number of people, including women, to actually benefit from that sector are, I think, large. Look into the preparations for the referendum. I'd say that it's not only the the people of Bougainville who are interested in this, it's P&G, it's Australia, it's the mining companies. What have you found out in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time. I mean, there are kind of lingering questions over whether or not the referendum will, in fact, go ahead. You know, it's sort of, I guess, locked up to a degree in kind of internal P&G politics. But I think for Australians, this is quite, you know, interesting. As I said, you know, if Bougainville was to become independent, it would be one of our nearest, newest neighbours. Um, and you could probably look towards Timor-Leste as a recent example of that. So I think there's a lot of interest from there. Obviously, the mining sector is interested. And I think probably more broadly, because there is actually peace in Bougainville, and there has been for some time, an environment that is, you know, involved in conflict is not particularly attractive to the mining sector, largely, but a place that is, you know, enjoying peace is, you know, kind of reduces risk for the mining sector, you know, potentially projects could be developed and so on. Um, So there is interest. With the exception of Panguna, Bougainville has not been mined elsewhere, so, you know, there are no doubt untapped deposits, to kind of use the language of the mining sector, that, yeah, that companies absolutely would be interested in. I don't think... You know, the question of whether Bougainville is independent or not would necessarily factor too much into kind of company thinking. But, you know, so long as kind of in a general sense peace is maintained. But, yeah, absolutely, companies are looking at that. And probably the other kind of actor that is would be Australian government, naturally. 
um, including the aid program. Presumably, a newly independent Bougainville would be the recipient of Australian aid. So I know that the Australian government is thinking about, well, what are the implications of that for it? You're saying that you're not quite sure whether the referendum might go ahead. I thought that date in June 2019 was sort of set in concrete. Certainly the Bougainville Peace Agreement talks about, you know, a referendum being held by that date, and that's the date that's been talked about. There has been some media coverage, although probably not a lot, where, you know, some decision-makers from within PNG itself, as opposed to Bougainville, have kind of questioned whether or not the referendum will go ahead. So, yeah, I think it's one to watch. For what reason are they saying it mightn't go ahead? I don't know. Listen, I don't know. I mean, it could be linked to kind of broader kind of political instability elsewhere in Papua New Guinea. I don't know. It could be PNG government eyeing off the Panguna mine, thinking that, you know, that's a bucket of money they would like to access. I don't know. But certainly the Bougainville Peace Agreement does place a fair degree of power over all of these kind of related matters with the PNG government. So time will tell. Certainly I think there is a strong desire from within Bougainville that the referendum go ahead. And certainly what I heard when I was there is, I guess, a sense of excitement about Bougainville's future and this idea that Bougainville can stand on its own two feet in the world. In fact, it's got something good to say to the world. You know, Bougainville society is rich. You know, it's closely linked to the environment and so on. And these are things that people are quite proud of. And I think that many people feel that others from elsewhere in the world could actually look to and learn. So I think, yeah, there's a, I think there's a high degree of optimism. Um, but whether that optimism is met or not, I guess, remains to be seen. How many mining companies are you aware of who are vying to open this, reopen this mine and what influence would they or do they have in what's happening on Bougainville today? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm, I'm aware of two companies who are kind of interested in Panguna. So one is Bougainville Copper Limited, so that's the company that operated the mine previously and there's another Australian company. And the kind of politics of all of this are a little bit murky in terms of you know, which company the different landowner groups are talking to and, you know, the kind of politics of that. And, you know, it's really about, I think, you know, potentially individual leaders, you know, benefiting financially themselves. So that's all a bit murky. But there are other companies, including Australian companies, who are interested in Bougainville. So, for example, in North Bougainville, um, there's an Australian company called Carlia Holdings, who is wanting to explore there. So I think, you know, a focus on Panguna is important because it is so critical to Bougainville's kind of recent past and, you know, will be important in its future. But also there are other companies sniffing around as well um, that, you know, certainly for Jubilee Australia, we're, you know, interested in kind of knowing what they're doing. So, yeah, I think <laughs> it's a bit of a watch this space, I think. Moving to... PNG in recent times have been tensions in the Highland regions, what could be called resource conflicts, but this is not new in PNG, is it? And it's not just in Australia either with extractive multinationals coming into developing countries. Can you talk about that bit of that history in PNG? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, so there's a long history of mining and oil and gas extraction from across PNG, and the consequences of this is usually quite negative. So I think what we're seeing in the PNG Highlands, which is related to the PNG LNG project, so that's an ExxonMobil project, but there are some joint venture partners, including Australian companies, so Santos, um, and Oil Search, which is kind of a PNG Australian company there, 
part of that, and Australia's Export Credit Agency also loaned the project half a billion dollars a number of years back. So that's a project that's kind of getting the attention at the moment, and as you said, there is significant conflict linked to this particular project. This conflict, I think, comes from kind of, you know, there's two kind of main reasons for the, the present conflict that we're seeing. One is the fact that landowners are not receiving royalties, even though PNG legislation says that they should. And this goes back to the fact that landowners were never properly identified before the project began. So the monies that ought to be going to landowners are kind of sitting in a bank account somewhere. And because that, because these landowners have not been identified, no one's actually receiving the royalties that they're due at their local level. So that's a source of conflict and grievance. But also the kind of broader development projects and benefits that were offered have not been implemented. So, you know, the improvements to roads or schools or hospitals just haven't eventuated. So again, that's, you know, cause of conflict and grievance. But I think probably a, you know, an important point to make is that these issues are not unique to the PNG LNG project. And really, kind of, if you look at if you look at the mining, oil, and gas sector across PNG, we kind of see similar or related things. So, you know, concerns around who benefits, concerns around a you know a broader lack of development benefits, environmental pollution, which we've talked about in the context of the Panguna mine in in Bougainville. Most mines in PNG, you know, dump their waste down rivers, so meaning that most of the major rivers in PNG are polluted. You're also seeing broader social conflict, human rights abuse. You know, so one example, for example, is the Porgera gold mine, again in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. You know, that mine, you know, is accused and has been found to have, you know, seriously violated human rights, including women's rights. So there's a long history of sexual violence directed at women at the hands of staff employed by that particular mine site. And the, probably the final kind of point to make is just the economic impacts of the mining, oil and gas sector and the fact that, you know, certainly you know, in our mines, you know, the evidence that we have, you know, kind of points to it not being the panacea that, you know, many say it will be. It has not contributed to the economy, the, the, you know, to the extent that its proponents claim. Um, you know, employment... You know, the number of people employed are quite low, taxes paid are not particularly high, and more broadly, just distorts the economy, which means it's harder for people, say, in the agriculture sector to actually export their goods because just the way they're kind of, you know, the Kina, you know, the value of the Kina changes. Is there a lot of corruption with the government? Yeah, there certainly is a lot of corruption across within PNG politics. The extent to which that is then directly linked to the extractive sector... I guess it's not clear. I mean, I certainly wouldn't kind of go so far as to say that, you know, any of the particular kind of mines that we see particular problems with, you know, gain their licences corruptly. But there are certainly issues of corruption. I think more broadly what that does is just kind of undermine democratic processes. There's kind of a broader set of challenges. Well, we're focusing on ExxonMobil. The mine has been seriously disrupted, if not shut down, because of the the um, burning of a lot of them yeah. mining material. They haven't settled the landowners' disputes about who's going to get the money. This project's not going to go ahead, is it? Because the, the problems will just exacerbate. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sort of hard to know what will happen next. Um, but you're absolutely right, you know, so equipment's been burnt down. You know, as I understand it, Exxon staff have been evacuated. You know, over the last few days, I think the PNG Defence Force, you know, kind of sent, you know, soldiers in to kind of protect, you know, protect the region. Um, so there's some, you know, 
I mean, there is quite serious levels of kind of conflict at the moment, you know, directed at the Exxon project. What that will look like in the future, who knows? But I think, you know, but if you kind of look back and say, well, a lot of this could have been predicted. You know, if landowners had been properly identified before the project commenced, that would have made a huge difference. If, you know, the development projects were promised had actually been delivered properly and people are benefiting, we might not be seeing the levels of conflict that we are. I mean, it is enormously complicated and, you know, there's a lot of different things at play, but there's some pretty fundamental things that if they had have been done could potentially, you know, mean that we're not seeing the conflict today that we are. Well, who's working to make sure it doesn't go further? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's so complex. You know, there's not one body that has the kind of authority and respect of all stakeholders to kind of work this out. You know, there are the companies, there are obviously the government, there's individual leaders and landowners, you know, and also, you know, at least some kind of incidents of kind of violence and conflict are wrapped up in kind of more local level politics, you know, so disputes around election outcomes. So there's a lot of kind of interlinked things going on. So it is very hard to know, you know, what's going to kind of break, you know, what's going to kind of, yeah, fix this, for want of a better word. You know, the kind of... The way forward is certainly not clear, and the kind of solution, whatever that might be, is not necessarily clear either. It's in, yeah, it's incredibly complex. And I'd imagine too, if the police or the military come in and rough up the people that they believe are responsible for this, and they are taken away and jailed, that could cause more problems. Potentially, I mean, you know, it's entirely possible that you know conflict will escalate rather than de-escalate. So it's really, it's really tricky. Not a very good note to end on, is it? Not really. I mean, it's nice to kind of end on a positive note, isn't it? But, but in this case, it's really kind of hard to know what will happen next. And I think, you know, the outside is kind of hard to make, you know, sense of it. It's a really tricky one. Uh, but I think there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from this, including that can kind of, kind of apply back to Bodeville. You know, it's important if, you know, following proper processes, ensuring that those who ought to benefit from these sorts of projects do ensuring that there's a proper process where people can actually say what they think. You know, do they want these sorts of projects or not? But if they don't, that, you know, those, those views are actually heard by decision makers. Yeah, so there are, you know, there are better ways, there are different ways than a, a reliance on, you know, mining oil and gas projects. And I think, you know, certainly for organisations like Jubilee, you know, a lot of what we do is to kind of highlight, to highlight this. Well, it's not as if they're the first chip off the block, are they? This stuff's been going on for decades. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the world over, you know, the mining sector has been the cause of all sorts of problems. So none of this is new, <laughs> absolutely. Thank you, Christina. And that was Christina Hill from Jubilee, Australia. And that's all from me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4, but we're going to hear a little bit of Paul Kelly before done by law at four o'clock so I'll say bye for now and I'll be there next week